Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, Gustav Vasa took control over Sweden. Initially, he wasn't really into the whole Lutheran Reformation thing that his Danish counterpart was introducing. But the new king of Sweden was in debt to Lübeck, the Hanseatic city that had bankrolled his war of independence against Denmark. So when he realized that the leading Lutheran theologians approved of the crown releasing the church of the bonds of earthly possessions, Gustav Vasa saw a golden opportunity to settle his debt. Since Gustav Vasa's Lutheran Reformation was more about money, and to a certain extent about politics and prestige, but not primarily about religion, the Reformation was far less radical in Sweden than in Denmark. That did not, however, mean that the Swedes took more kindly to Lutheranism than the Danes had done. Today, we'll take a look at some of the more dramatic reactions to the Reformation in Gustav Vasa's realm. Episode 75, Thunder and Bells. Gustav Vasa had been careful not to allow any too dramatic changes to the mass of the cult in general, especially compared to some other places where the Lutheran Reformation had been more ideologically and theologically driven. Nonetheless, there was widespread resentment against the Lutheran reforms, or heresies as critics tended to see them, throughout Sweden. The king was blamed for these changes, and his popularity wasn't helped by the fact that the harvests had been bad and the taxes had gone up. A number of rebellions broke out over the years, making Gustav Vasa's throne far from secure during the 1520s and 1530s. In fact, he's one of the Scandinavian kings who'd had to face the largest number of popular uprisings during his reign. All of these rebellions were motivated by the Lutheran Reformation, or at least used the Reformation as an excuse to rebel against the king, since the rebels knew the religious changes were unpopular. Several rebellions were even led by high-ranking members of the church, including bishops. In the spring of 1529, two years after the Reformation Riksdag at Vesteros, Gustav Vasa's sister, Margaret Eriksdotter Vasa, was traveling home through Sweden after a visit to Germany. Her timing, and choice of route, was unfortunate because trouble was stirring in southern Sweden and when she reached Jönköping, she was seized by the local authorities. At the very least, the abduction must have been inconvenient, quite possibly scary or even traumatizing. But Margaret Vasa was still relatively lucky. Not too long after she'd been captured, some peasants in the area lynched one of the king's representatives who'd come to Småland to collect taxes. That became the spark that ignited a wider rebellion in the region, and local peasants started to pass around a manifesto protesting against the evil king and his heresies, accusing him of expelling monks and bishops, calling him a threat to all good Christian customs and traditions. For good measure, they added that he'd raised the taxes as well. As I'm sure you've noticed by now, pointing out that the taxes have gone up is always a good way to get people to join your rebellion. But this wasn't just another run-of-the-mill peasant rebellion provoked by yet another tax hike. Some of the leading noblemen of the realm led this rebellion. Among them was Ture Jönsson of the family Trerosur. He was a very big deal. Not only was he a member of the council of the realm, he was the steward of the realm. And at Gustav Vasa's coronation, he'd been the guy who'd carried the orb. Another leading member of the rebellion was the local bishop, 
who had been one of the three bishops who conducted the coronation ceremony. So this was a rebellion at the very heart of the state apparatus. The king couldn't count on the support of the people who were supposed to govern the kingdom for him. And these weren't the only members of the high nobility and senior church hierarchy who joined the rebellion either. No fewer than seven members of the Council of the Realm were found among the rebels. Their aim was to topple Gustav Vasa and to replace him with one of the rebels, a nobleman called Mons Brintneson of the Liljehoek family. As an aside, I have to say that some of these medieval Scandinavian noble families have pretty random names. For instance, this guy's name is literally the combination of the words lily and hawk, like the flower and the bird. We've already encountered the Oxenschana family, whose name originally falls back on the German for ox forehead, and there's the family Natto dog, meaning night and day. Some of the later noble family names tend to sound a little on the nose for English speakers, like Arenkruna, meaning crown of honor, and Adelsvad, meaning noble sword. There are other examples as well, but I digress. Since there were so many noblemen participating in this particular rebellion, they could muster a significant military force, including cavalry. And because of the high number of aristos involved, it's sometimes referred to as the Rebellion of the Westrogothian Lords. But I preferred its other, objectively cooler name, the Westrogothian Thunder. On April 20th, the rebels met at a thing in Westrogothia, where they officially rejected Gustav Vasa as king and nullified all the solemn oaths of fealty that they had sworn to him only a few years ago. All the high-ranking members of the rebellion were present, granting some gravitas to the proceedings. They also sent messages in all directions, urging neighboring regions to join the rebellion as well. Ture Jönsson, the steward of the realm, had a son who was a senior cleric at Uppsala Cathedral, and he spread the word about the rebellion in the northern parts of the country, trying to convince people to join. To say that things didn't look good for Gustav Vasa that spring would be something of an understatement. But he didn't panic. Instead, he quickly took the initiative and went on the offensive, starting with a charm variety. He sent out letters of his own already before the thing in Westrogothia had even met and sent out their missives, urging people all over Sweden to calm down and not to join any silly rebellions. Already on April 6th, two full weeks before the rebel thing, the king had sent a letter to the people of Ostrogothia, warning them against joining the rebellion and also urging them to assist in the liberation of his beloved sister Margaret, who had been so cruelly kidnapped by a bunch of evil peasants. On April 16th, he sent another letter, this time to his sister's captors, thanking them for taking her under their protection in this turbulent time and taking such good care of her. He also stressed that the tax collector they had killed probably had it coming, but added that he'd prefer if they'd refrain from taking the law into their own hands in the future. But his smartest piece of written diplomacy was saved for the peasants of Westrogothia. He wrote to them on April 25th in the mildest and most understanding of tones, insisting that he understood and sympathized with their plight and that he'd be more than happy to negotiate in good faith with them in order to arrive at a solution that everyone would be happy with. But he did so regret that they'd been misled by this group of nobles who'd managed to get the good upstanding peasants of Estrogothia to believe that the king in some way was responsible for introducing heresies and increasing taxes. Nothing could be further from the truth, 
If the good upstanding peasants of Westrogothia would just ditch their alliance with the local nobility, the king would listen to all their grievances and make sure that all got what they wanted. Everything would remain as it always had been. They would have as many churches and monasteries as their hearts desired, and they wouldn't have to pay any extra taxes. That way, he managed to drive a wedge between the peasants and the nobility in Westrogothia, dividing and conquering. The will to fight melted away among the peasants, and the noblemen soon found themselves isolated and exposed. It didn't help that they soon found out that they wouldn't be getting any help from abroad either. They had hoped that Lübeck would be happy to assist them in fighting Gustav Vasa because the king had been withholding payments on his debt to the Hanseatic city for a while. But unfortunately for the rebels, the king and Lübeck had recently come to an agreement and Gustav Vasa had resumed the payments of his debt. That meant that Lübeck had very little interest in provoking the king of Sweden by assisting his enemies. When the nobles leading the Westrogothian thunder realized that they didn't stand a chance, the steward Ture Jönsson and the local bishop chose to sneak away to Denmark as soon as they could. The other noblemen who had been involved in the short-lived rebellion did what they could to diminish their own role and participation in the whole affair. But just because he had managed to deflate the rebellion, that didn't mean the king was done. Far from it. He still wanted blood. At a meeting of the Riksdag that summer, three members of the Council of the Realm who had been involved in the rebellion had the guts to show up. Gustav Vasa accused them of participating in the Westrogothian thunder, but they denied it emphatically. Unfortunately for them, though, the king had proof. In what must have been quite a dramatic scene, he produced letters his agents had picked up where the council members' guilt was spelled out in black and white, literally. The three exposed rebels were brought to Stockholm, where two of them were beheaded on the main square, the same square where the Stockholm bloodbath had taken place. One of them, Ture Eriksson Bjelke, was pardoned because his mother begged the king to spare him. That makes you think what the mothers of the two others were doing that was so important that they couldn't spare the time to ask the king not to execute their sons. But what do I know about the finer points of the scheduling challenges that medieval ladies faced? Anyway, the king also wrote to his ex-steward, Ture Jönsson, and the bishop who had gone into exile in Denmark, and promised that everything was forgotten and they, that they could come home again. On May 30th, the two of them sent a polite reply declining the generous offer. Gustav Vasa then sent a message to his Danish counterpart, urging the king of Denmark to hand over the two exiles. But he also refused to help. It seemed like the two leaders of the Westrogothian thunder would have gotten away. But a few years later, the ex-steward Ture Jönsson was found with his head cut off, most likely the result of an assassination ordered by the king of Sweden. Even though the rebellion had ended, Gustav Vasa wasn't done writing letters. Later that summer, ahead of the traditional things that were held in the fall, Gustav Vasa sent out more letters promising clemency and amnesty to anyone who attended the things and renewed their oaths of fealty. And he actually kept his promise and let repentant peasants live on condition that they paid heavy fines, which went straight into the king's own pocket. Even the three remaining members of the Council of the Realm who had participated in the rebellion were pardoned. The Westrogothian thunder may have passed by, but that didn't mean that the weather was clear and sunny as far as Gustav Vasa was concerned. Far from it. The next region to erupt in rebellion was Dalarna, 
the very same region where Gustav Vasa himself had started the rebellion that led to him taking over as King of Sweden. In other words, unrest wasn't new to this part of the country, but this time the roles were reversed. Just like in Westrogothia, the people of Dalarna were provoked by, to rebellion by a combination of the king's religious reforms and his tax policies. More specifically, his demand that each parish church hand over a bell to the crown. That demand gave the rebellion its name, the Bell Rebellion. But the Bell Rebellion, which started in 1531, wasn't actually the first uprising against Gustavus's rule to break out in Dalarna. In the previous decade, there had already been two unsuccessful attempts to rise up against him. The first rebellion in Dalarna occurred already a year after Gustav had become king of Sweden. In other words, the people who had first risen up to fight for Gustav Vasa were also the first to go against him. At first, the complaints against the new regime had mainly been financial and political. Prices had gone up drastically, and because of the privileges Gustav Vasa had been forced to grant the merchants from Lübeck based in Stockholm, these foreign merchants had been able to buy up large amounts of grain, selling it with a high markup, making grain unaffordable for a lot of people. And since people were fond of eating, they didn't like this development. People also grumbled about Gustav Vasa having fired many of the governors and commanders of castles who had worked for and with Stensture Jr. Instead, the new king had done what so many previous Danish kings had done and employed foreigners to command castles and govern lands in Sweden. The flames of discontent were fanned by a couple of priests from Westeros who'd served Stensture Jr. and who'd expressed their unhappiness with Gustav Vasa a little too indiscreetly so they had been fired from their posts. In late 1524, they travelled through Dalarna to incite people against the king and it had the desired effect. When the king was informed about their activities, he sent letters to the peasants of Dalarna. As you've already noticed, Gustav Vasa was a prolific letter writer, and thanks to the fact that many of them remain, we have a pretty good idea of what went on during his reign. In his letters, he warned them not to get involved with the embittered priest from Westeros, and instead urged them to stay calm and loyal. Nonetheless, the people of Dalarna met for a thing in the spring of 1525, where they listed all their complaints against the king and threatened to consider their oaths of fealty to him to have been voided unless he addressed their grievances. The king received the letter in May that year, but instead of caving, he put together a force that he led to Dalarna in October. There, at another thing, in the presence of the king personally, the locals apologized for rebelling, promising to behave and begged not to be punished. The king did agree not to punish the peasants, but his forgiveness did not extend to the leaders of the rebellion. But by this time, they had already fled to Norway, where they hoped to enjoy the protection of the Archbishop of Trondheim. Unfortunately for the rebel leaders, though, the King of Denmark was keen to preserve good relations with Gustav Vasa, and he definitely did not think harbouring Trajanist rebels was worth risking the cordial connections for. So he had the fugitives apprehended and sent to Sweden. There, they were put on trial and swiftly executed, despite protests from the church that the crown had no right to execute members of the clergy. The leaders of that first rebellion in Dalarna had only just been executed when a second rebellion broke out in the troublesome region. This, the second rebellion, was even more dangerous for the king than the first relatively tame one had been. The reason for the second rebellion in Dalarna was that even though the first one had been crushed, none of the problems that caused it had actually been addressed. 
there was still a lack of affordable grain, German merchants were still trying to enforce the promises of a monopoly that Gustav Vasa had given them, and it didn't help that rumours of various Lutheran reforms were starting to spread from Stockholm. A new rebellion soon formed around a potentially very dangerous enemy for Gustav Vasa. The leader of this second rebellion was none other than Niels Sture, the son of Sten Sture Jr., the steward of the realm who had fought the Danes, and Christina Jyllenschana, Stensture's formidable widow who had led the desperate defence of Stockholm against Christian the Tyrant. In the eyes of a lot of people, Nils Sture had a better claim to the Swedish crown than Gustav Vasa had, and now more and more people in Dalarna were willing to join his cause. Gustav Vasa had been worried about Christina Jyllenschana and her son for a while already, in order to neutralize Stensture Jr.'s popular widow and to rob her of political agency, he'd made her marry a cousin of his. Since the customs and laws at the time demanded that a married woman yield to her husband's will, Christina was no longer a threat to Gustav Vasa's rule as long as she was married to his loyal cousin. But her son was still free to pursue his own political ambitions. And so he did. In his attempts to convince the peasants to join in his rebellion, Nils Sture attacked the king's religious reforms as well as his tax policies, promising that if he was made king, he'd put an end to the Lutheran Reformation and lower the taxes. Just like two years ago, this was a popular message in Dalarna, and the ranks of Nils Sture's forces continued to swell. Support for the new rebellion even spread beyond Dalarna to neighboring regions. Gustav Vasa did what he usually did in situations like this. He wrote letters, promising concessions and clemency to anyone who was willing to abandon the rebellion and lay down their arms. In May 1527, at a meeting in Uppsala, he met with the representatives from Dalarna where he listened patiently to their complaints and promised to do his very best to make sure to take care of all their problems. From Uppsala, he continued to Westeros where the estates had been called to a riksdag. He summoned Nils Sture to attend, but the rebel leader chose not to go. Can't imagine why. Just like before, the royal letter-writing had the desired effect, and the peasants of Dalarna trusted the king's promises of change and no repercussions, if they were only to abandon the idea of a regime change. In the fall of 1527, Nils Sture realized this, and decided it was time to do what so many rebel leaders had done before him. He escaped across the border to Norway. There, he was greeted warmly by the Norwegian elites, among them Vincent Lunge, the commander at Bergenhus Castle in Bergen. He planned to liberate Norway from Danish overlordship and saw Nils Sture as a potential ally against Denmark in the future if he would help the Swedish rebel leader to take the Swedish throne now. Not long after Nils Sture arrived in Norway, a rumour reached him that Gustav Vasa had suddenly died. This cheered him up immensely, and his Norwegian allies shared in this sentiment. In November, Nils Sture was betrothed to a young relative of Vincent Lunges, and in the official betrothal announcement, he promised to return the region of Viken to Norway when he became king of Sweden. But first, he needed to become king of Sweden. To achieve that, he needed to rekindle his rebellion. So in January 1528, he sent a letter to the peasants of Dalarna, urging them to once again take up arms against Gustav Vasa. The response was chilly, though. The enthusiasm for further rebellion was low among the peasants in Dalarna that winter. But Nils Sture didn't let that stop him, and together with a military force consisting of Norwegians, he crossed the border into Sweden. 
The aim was to march on Stockholm and take over the crown, now that Gustav Vasa was dead. Or was he? Soon after the young Sture and his Norwegian army had reached Dalarna, they started to hear conflicting rumors about the king's health. Soon they realized that, much like Mark Twain, the reports of Gustav Vasa's death were greatly exaggerated. The king wasn't only alive, but he had also sent a military force to repel the Norwegian invasion. The Swedish defenders succeeded and Nils Sture's force was completely destroyed. Those who weren't killed or escaped back to Norway were all taken prisoner. Nils Sture himself managed to slip across the border to the, at least temporary, safety in Norway. A few days later, Gustav Vasa was crowned and the peasants of Dalarna sent a delegation to the festivities to assure the king that they were happy to remain his loyal subjects. Gustav Vasa was in a good mood and replied cordially that he understood and accepted their remorse. He was definitely willing to let bygones be bygones, no hard feelings whatsoever. In fact, he was so accepting of their remorse and so willing to let bygones be bygones that in February he put together a considerable military force consisting of 14,000 men and went to Dalarna to participate personally in a thing there on Ash Wednesday, a few days before Easter. When the peasants, who had been summoned to the thing, had arrived, the king had his soldiers surround them. He even placed cannons around them, pointing at the crowd of unarmed peasants. The king then rode up to the surrounded people wearing full armor. He had a number of members of the Council of the Realm sent forward to speak to the peasants, who at this point, no doubt, were getting pretty nervous. First, a proclamation was read out, where the gathered peasants were condemned for their behavior in the last few years. It clarified in no uncertain terms that they no longer had any right whatsoever to interfere in the issue of who should be king of Sweden, and if they did try to get involved, they would be punished as enemies of the realm. Then, a member of the Council of the Realm spoke, chastising the peasants for having broken their oath of loyalty to the king despite the king being so exceedingly patient with them. To finish off, the council member told the peasants that if they didn't hand over all those who'd supported Nils Sture, all those gathered at the thing would be executed. Faced with this stark choice, the peasants started to rat each other out, naming those who'd participated in the rebellion. The accused were immediately condemned to death, and the soldiers started to execute them. As the number of executed peasants rose, the remaining became increasingly vocal in their clamor for mercy. To begin with, the king ignored them, but when he felt that the demonstration of his power had had the desired effect, he ordered a halt to the killing and pardoned the survivors. That put an effective and definitive end to the second rebellion in Dalarna. But the big fish, the leader, Nils Sture himself, was still at large, and Gustav Vasa had no intention of letting him get away. First, he demanded that the Norwegians hand him over, but they refused. To avoid having to deal with the King of Sweden, Nils Sture was sent to Denmark to be held in the custody of King Frederick himself. But on the way south, Nils Sture managed to slip away and escape in the vicinity of Helsingborg in Scania. Some blame the escape on Vincent Lunge, Nils Sture's powerful Norwegian ally, but he denied all involvement. Gustav Vasa continued to hunt for Nils Sture, and in June he was told that the young pretender had been seen in the German port city of Rostock. The king immediately sent a threatening letter to the city council, demanding that they hand over Nils Sture to the Swedes, or at least arrest him. The local authorities did the latter, 
and when a delegation sent from Gustav Vasa reached Rostock in September, Nils Sture was held in custody there. The Swedish representatives brought with them renewed demands that the pretender be handed over to them and sent back to Sweden. They also carried with them a letter from Christina Jöllenschana herself, denying that the man in their custody was her son Nils. There's no way of knowing if Christina really didn't think this was her son, or if she'd been coerced into writing the letter, forced by the king and her new husband, the king's cousin. Either way, the man who claimed to be Nils Sture wasn't handed over to the Swedes. Instead, he was put on trial in Rostock. During the trial, he admitted that he'd tried to topple Gustav Vasa and claim the Swedish crown for himself. He was condemned to death and had his head chopped off shortly thereafter at the end of September 1528. So, as you see, the rebellious spirit in the Dalarna region hadn't been extinguished after Gustav Vasa started his own successful rebellion there. And the harsh treatment at the thing in 1528 and the execution of Nils Sture didn't have the desired effect either, at least not in the long term. Because now we finally get back to the third rebellion in Dalarna against Gustav Vasa, the so-called Bell Rebellion. At the Reformation Riksdag in Westeros in 1527 that we discussed last time, the peasants had obtained guarantees that individual parish churches would not be touched by the Lutheran reforms, or the king's tax collectors. But it only took a few years for the crown to start to claim property belonging to the parish churches, such as silver vessels, fancy vestments worn by priests, and other valuable items that could be melted down or sold for cash. This new way of raising money for the crown met increasing resentment in the early 1530s, and in 1531 the people in Dalarna once again reached their breaking point. This, the third rebellion, was provoked by a new tax. The crown demanded that every parish hand over one of its church bells. Parishes who wanted to keep their bell could pay its value in copper or silver, and parishes with only one bell could pay half its value to be allowed to keep the actual bell. Officially, this measure was justified with a pressing need to pay the debt to Lübeck for having helped Sweden regain independence from Denmark. This debt and the war were well known, so it made sense to use it as an excuse. But in reality, it was only that, an excuse. The truth was that the foreign debt had almost completely been repaid by 1531. This money raised by confiscating church bells would be going to other things, mostly military spending. In the Middle Ages, and for generations afterward, church bells were highly symbolic items. Usually, the local peasants had saved and paid for it together, and they took pride in the bells that tolled for mass, births, deaths and weddings in their communities. The bells were also used to gather the locals for meetings and to warn against dangers, and to scare off evil. For that reason alone, taking a church bell was a serious strike against the morale of the local communities. The demand wasn't popular anywhere, but in Dalarna it was met with resistance. When the king's men arrived in the town of Lexand in March 1531 to collect the required bell, they were attacked and beaten by a mob of furious peasants. They managed to escape with their lives, though they had to leave all the bells they had collected behind. When news of the incident spread, more and more people started to refuse to hand over their church bells as well, and there were calls to gather that summer to discuss issues relevant to the peasantry. These issues included more general complaints against the Lutheran changes following the Reform Riksdag in 1527, 
The king once again responded by sending out letters asking people to stay calm. He followed his usual playbook and used an accommodating tone. He promised lower taxes to those who didn't join the rebellion and lied and said that the unrest in Dalarna had already been crushed. Gustavasa also called for the Riksdag to meet at Uppsala, where he continued to lie. But the lie he presented to the estates was different. Now the king claimed that the rebellion was a part of a conspiracy spearheaded by the evil king of Denmark, and that exiled traitors such as Archbishop Gustav Trolle from the Stockholm bloodbath and Ture Jönsson, Tre Rusur, from the Westrogothian thunder, were the leaders of the Bell Rebellion. Once again, the king's propaganda effort paid off, and the rebellion eventually started to peter out. In the fall, the king sent another letter promising amnesty and a general pardon if the rebels were to lay down their weapons. This had the desired effect, and people went home and about their business. At the end of the year, Gustav Vasa showed what the conciliatory promises that he had given when he was under pressure were worth now when he was back in control. Spoiler, not much. He called all noblemen in Sweden to Vesteros, where they were to show up with all their military might. He also called the leaders of Dalarna to a meeting in January 1532. Many of those who'd been summoned understood what was coming and chose not to attend. Those who did show up soon learned that this had been a mistake. The king's promises of pardon and amnesty were empty words. Suspected rebels were arrested and executed, and the suspected leaders of the rebellion were brought to Stockholm, where they at least would have the privilege of a trial. At the trial, they were accused not only of rebellion, but also of conspiring with the King of Denmark and with the Lords of Westrogothia. None of that was true, of course, but it didn't matter. The result was the same. They too were eventually executed. So within less than a decade on the throne, Gustav Vasa had been forced to deal with a number of rebellions against him. Few kings had faced that many rebellions, and even fewer had survived a similar amount. But Gustav Vasa had shown his worth as a politician, a diplomat, and a ruthless leader in his responses to all these rebellions. At first, he'd calmed down and confused the enemy with a mix of propaganda and promises. Then, when he'd regained the upper hand, he'd moved in to crush the rebellions with as much military might as was needed, and then some. The king had shown that he was a survivor and that he intended to remain on the Swedish throne, whatever his subjects thought about his religious reforms and fiscal policies. But for Gustav Vasa, the worst was yet to come. Tune in next time to find out more. Next time, by the way, will not be in another fortnight. Instead, we reconvene to see Gustav Vasa face the biggest threat to his reign in three weeks' time, on January 5th, 2024. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or 
speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>